0: With daily live breakthrough coaching, an intimate and supportive community, regular peer-to-peer connection calls, and a complete vault of resources, this is where your path to total freedom and effortless enjoyment of your new way of life begins. Join us at NakedMindPath.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and this is This Naked Mind Podcast, and I'm here with Mark. Welcome, Mark. Good to have you here.
1: It's great to be here, Annie. Thank you.
0: Awesome. So, why don't you sort of take me back to the beginning for you? Uh, Where did it all start?
1: Back to the beginning. Okay. Well, like a lot of people you've probably talked to, the beginning for me was sometime around the early teen years, Um, about the age of 14. uh, I got, I had drink, I started drinking for the first time. and I again i was thinking about how to prepare for the the conversation we were having today and I, and I i realized that i remembered the first time that i actually got drunk and it was uh it was an interesting experience i went over to a friend's house in the same neighborhood that i lived in and um You know, his parents had gone out for the night and we raided the liquor cabinet uh, as as you do at that age. And uh, the only thing that they really had, uh, it was a Greek family, so they had a lot of ouzo, but we didn't really like that. But there was a big old bottle of gin in there. So we grabbed this bottle of gin and started drinking right out of the bottle, doing shots. And I think I made it like six in and my my friend just went to the bathroom, threw up. And he was done for the night. My experience was totally different. The stuff tasted awful, but, uh, the feeling I got after drinking it was like, I felt like a, like Superman. Like I just had a rocket underneath me and I really liked it. And I I remember sitting there in the easy chair with him passed out in the room next to me thinking, I'm going to do a little more of this. (laughs) It seems like the thing that I, I'm going to spend some time and invest some time in and, uh, you know, he got in trouble, I got in trouble, whatever. But uh, that, that didn't really stop me. I mean, I I, uh, I went off to high school and um, met some friends there and they and I would steal the beers from the dad's, uh, you know, uh, cooler and whatnot, hide them in the woods and then go drink them later. Um, and that but that was pretty consistent. Although something I noticed even back then with my friends was, um, you know, they'd have a couple and, you know, we'd, spend a couple hours messing around, and then they'd go home, and I'd go try and find more beer somewhere. Um, mm. Usually, I was able to. <laughs> Not hard to find beer in the, in the early 80s. It was all, all over the place. Uh, you know, everybody had some at home. So, um, you know, it got, it got to the point where towards the end of high school, and I was, I was a, a good student. I went to a fairly a good high school. It was, a, it was a private Catholic school, all boys Catholic school. Um, but, uh, towards the end there, you know, occasionally my friends would have to carry me home from a party or something. And, and I remember one night when they, when they brought me up and delivered me to my, to my parents, um, you know, my mother was like, why do you have to get this way? And, and I said, I, I, I don't know. (laughs) It's just, I, I like it. Um, but I managed to hold it together. I graduated from, from high school, did very well. I went off to a a Jesuit college in New York. Um, And uh, that's when sort of the wheels came off the bus for me with respect to drinking. Um, It was the eighties, it was New York city, big party atmosphere. Um, Then I started getting into cocaine when I got there. And uh, that was something else that was, you know, diverted me for a few years out of my life. but the thing about cocaine, and I and I realized this much later on, was I never I could count on one hand the amount of time I ever did cocaine if I hadn't been drinking first, and mm-hmm. there were two times: the first time I bought it, and the second time, like twenty minutes later, <laughs> when I bought it. But every other time, uh, I was drinking before. So my my problem was always alcohol. Uh, you know, drugs were sort of a, a diversion off to the side, but. I made it through uh, that first semester with a with a rocking uh, 0.0 average. Uh, the school decided to give me one more chance. Uh, I held it together to get through that next semester. And then I failed out uh, the following semester after that. Uh, and it was all because of the drinking and, and the drugs. There was no, you know, I, it wasn't that I wasn't capable of doing the work. I mean, it, it, was, it was just simply the, you know. And that kind of sent me off on a, on a spiral where I didn't do much of anything for the next, five years or so. Um, other than just go to parties, I stayed living in the, in the area where the school was, uh, you know, I'd work delivering pizza or something, but I would just continue to go to college parties. Uh, and that was fine until people got tired of me being around because I was, you know, not behaving myself. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of drinking and the drug use, of course. Um, so, um, after about four more years of that, um, I guess we're up to about 1990, 1991, um, I just, something inside of me, I said, you know what, this is not, I can't continue to live like this. Friends were graduating, they were going off and getting jobs, and I had just classic failure to launch, like I just didn't do anything. So I said, you know what, I'm, and I gained weight, I, I maxed out, I weighed like 250 pounds at my, my peak. And uh I said, you know, this, something has to stop. So one day I just, I went outside in the little urban neighborhood I was in and I put on a pair of jogging shoes and I just ran around the block, uh, which was funny because the, the kids were sitting out on the stoop and they were making fun of me when I walked by because I was this giant lumbery guy that they used to see smoking uh, on the front stoop all the time. And they couldn't quite, you know get their heads around what they were seeing but I kept it up and uh, I managed to, I stopped drinking. I stopped uh, smoking stopped doing any kind of drugs. And I started running like a madman, Um, lost like 65 pounds, became a vegan, you know, and I thought, man, I have this, this whole thing locked tight. I'm, I'm fine, you know? Um, But, you know, when you're, when you're that age, when you're like in your early twenties, it's, it's just so much harder to maintain any kind of you know, sobriety or anything when, when everybody around you, especially if you live in a city like New York is just going out all the time. Everybody's out partying and you don't want to be the, the stick in the mud. Who's just kind of like, you know, I can't do anything. So, you know, after, after a, a, a good stretch of <clears throat> sobriety, I didn't go to AA. I didn't do anything like that. I was, it was purely self-directed. And in a time before there was anything other than AA, really, it was just, um, you know, a lot of, uh you know, maybe there was some self-help books or whatever. Uh, but certainly nothing like the resources you have today with like, you know, this Naked Mind or, or any of the other programs out there that are non-12-step based. So, um, you know, I, I eventually sort of drifted back into, into drinking in, in the mid-90s. <clears throat> and uh, at the same time, I was going back to school. I was working uh, during the day, going full-time at night. So... My drinking was sort of tempered by the fact that I had sort of rearranged my priorities to the point where I had put, um, work and, um, you know, trying to be responsible at the top and trying to confine the alcohol to weekends and nights and any, basically any time I could slot it in that it wasn't really interfering with anything. Although of course it was interfering, you know, because it was basically all of my free time that I wasn't, uh uh working or in school i'd just be drinking so um so you know i remember those years as just a grind you know just between the drinking at night and the and the working during the day and the school and everything it was just like i I just wanted to get through it Um, and then i i had one particularly bad night where i um i went out uh had a lot to drink found a guy on the lower east side where i was living at the time in manhattan bought some drugs and then stayed out for like a day and a half. Uh, And that's, I got back from, from that escapade. And I realized that, you know, the illusion of control was that I had some, (laughs) I didn't really have any. So uh, at that point I had a few friends who I used to run with back in the eighties. And I called one of them up and I said, listen, you've been sober for whatever it is, 10 years now, how did you do it? And he took me to an AA meeting. And so I went to an AA meeting. This is, mid nineties or so. And, um, you know, I was like, well, this is interesting. Um, I, I, I I found it to be helpful at first because I was just so desperate. I was just grasping at anything, uh, which I think a lot of people who end up going to AA, that's sort of the position they find themselves in. Like that's, what's on offer. There's a room full of people that are willing to help you. Why not engage with it? And so I did engage with it. Um, but I engaged with it for 90 days, you know, then do 90 meetings in 90 days. I was like, fine, I'm going to do that. So I did that. <clears throat> on the 90th day, I'm like, well, okay, I guess I've graduated uh, <laughs> the, the program now. I don't really have, I must not have a drinking problem since I was able to stop so quickly. Um, and I think on the 91st or the 92nd day, I went, I went out and just, you know, carried on as, as before. But um, there, there's a saying in AA that, you know, the the absolute worst thing that you can have is a belly full of booze and a head full of, of AA uh, because you, you have the fact that you're not drinking, uh, quote unquote, normally, whatever that is, front and center in your mind and that you have some kind of a problem and that you have, you know, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. <clears throat> it's easy to sort of stuff that voice down uh, and <clears throat> replace it with your own, you know, um, uh you know mental tricks or whatever you know cause you to to you know you know how it is you know you this naked mind is all about the subconscious and how that's driving everything and 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 definitely all those patterns and everything that were still there uh were driving were driving the bus so uh but I was still managing to hold it together with work and so forth um so I um decided that I you know I Graduated college. It took me like ten years because I was going at night. But I said, you know what? Maybe I should just go to law school um, and see how that goes. And you know, I didn't really know what else to do. And and I I don't think I'm the only person that's ever gone to law school as a as sort of like (laughs) I don't know what else to do. So um, 1997, I went to law school, and a lot of the people who I went there with were considerably younger than me, by like five or six years, I guess. Maybe that's not considerably, but so they were still in, you know, high party mode. So I just sort of fell back into that pattern. I would go, um, you know, they had a free keg for law students every Thursday night at this bar. Um, and so everybody would go there Thursday night and they would drink the free keg. And of course, nobody left after that one. They just stay, you just stay for like you know, five or six hours and drink the rest of the kegs that were there, uh, that you had to pay for. Um, so, uh, after law school, um, I got through law school, did very well in law school, even though I was drinking far more than I, than I should be. Um, and, uh, I started a job, uh, working for the city of New York. Uh, and the week that I started was, uh, 9-11. Uh, and the morning of 9-11, I was, I was down in that, I worked in that neighborhood and we were supposed to have our picture taken with the mayor that day. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I was but I was late because the night before I had been out till two o'clock in the morning, and so 9 11 was on a Tuesday, so that would have made that a Monday night. Um, so this is far before I, I decided to do anything like trying to moderate my, my drinking. I was just like, Oh, it's Monday, in New York City, Monday's a good excuse to go out, I guess. I don't know, you can always find one. Um, so I was very hungover for 9 11, and and but unfortunately, I was you know, I was down there and I saw a lot of really awful things that day. And it kind of sent me off into a spiral for a couple of years where um, my drinking just really went through the roof.
0: Um, You're, when you emailed in, you said you were one block from. Yeah, the, wow.
1: Yeah, I was a block away. I was actually um, walking out of the building to see what was going on at the Trade Center when the second plane hit. And I um, you know, the glass in the building across the street shattered. I saw the reflection of the explosion in the glass and uh, a piece of the plane landed about, uh, I don't know, 50 yards away from where I was standing after ripping through the the building next door. Um, So that, yeah, it was, it was very disturbing. And then standing out there and, you know, you've seen the videos, unfortunately of the people who were jumping out of the buildings and to see that in in person was was a whole different layer of, 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 you know, it was just—it was an awful day. Um, walked back to Brooklyn that night, and of course, then went out with some friends, and we stayed out till seven o'clock in the morning the next morning, uh, just sort of drinking away with the, or trying to drink away the trauma. Which, you know, doesn't, of course, that never works. But uh, at the time, I, you know, I really didn't have the the, the tools to think of, of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so um, after a couple of years, you know, I, and. It was starting to affect my work at this point because we were out of the office that we were in because the, the, the building we were in actually was damaged in, in the in the attacks. So they moved us around. So we were uh, in a different offices trying to work without files. It was a very difficult period um, to be a, a city attorney because we had no resources to work with and everything. Um, and everybody I was working with who was there that day was pretty much in the same boat that I was. I mean, I don't think there was a lot of healthy coping that was going on after that event. I mean, uh, most of my coworkers and I would go out like three or four nights out of the week and just sort of sit in bars and, until 11 o'clock, go home, wake up, do the whole thing all over again. Um, about two years in, I, I decided maybe I need to get some help for this PTSD, <clears throat> which is what I had self-diagnosed myself with. Not that I had an alcohol problem, I, I had PTSD. So uh, I went to see a therapist, and you know, or we went at the first meeting, and then the second meeting, he said uh, I, I made some offhand comment about going out and maybe I'm drinking a little too much, and he said, "Well, how much do you drink?" And I said, "I, I have about eight pints." And he's like, "A week?" I said, "No, like a night." <laughs> he's like, "How many times a week do you do that?" I said, "I don't know, five, six. He's like, "I think you have an alcohol problem," and I. Said, what an alcohol problem my problem is that i have uh, ptsd from 9 11 or you know these this you know trauma from other areas of my life from from the lead drug seeking behavior i did in the 80s and he said listen i want you to go to an aa meeting and i was like listen i've been there i've done that and he's like oh so you do, so you do have a drinking problem you know you have a drinking problem and I just kind of blew him off and I, and that was the last time I went to see that therapist. I mean I was done with him because the last thing I wanted to do was was um, get my head around the fact that I needed to you know revisit the issue of my drinking I, you know because in my mind I'm thinking, well, okay, you know I have a good I have a good job, I'm doing okay. I'm not the best you know lawyer, I'm no Clarence Darrow, but I'm holding my own. Um, you know why stopping drinking just seemed like The idea just seemed ridiculous to me. Like there was no way that could ever happen. Um, So I just carried on and, uh, you know, thing, you know, it's, it's funny. uh, Lawyers drink a lot. Right. And, and so I left the city, I went to a private firm and all those guys drank a lot too. But the funny thing is I realized like I had friends in other industries and banking and, and advertising and all this, and every single one of them says, yeah, you know, our, our, our business like everybody drinks too much and i'm thinking is there a single business besides the rehab business that that is not known for excessive alcohol consumption it's, it's everywhere you know and i remember at the time kind of noting that like with a chuckle like yeah, yeah okay you know lawyers drink a lot bankers drink a lot stockbrokers drink a lot everybody drinks a lot uh and in new york city it's it's kind of like the the, you know, the town sport i guess you'd call it um uh, I think you worked in New York, didn't you? So you, you, you know, like, like, uh, you know, out every, out every night. And, and, um, you know, I went to the firm, you do conduct a lot of business in in bars and, you know, so it it seemed like a, like a natural environment for me. I was extremely gregarious. I was able to talk to people, you know, um, the thought of, you know, meeting with clients and doing that without alcohol is kind of terrifying. Um, So I just kind of carried on, but I wasn't really, I didn't feel like I was engaged in, you know, in my life. I was, I was married, Um, you know, my relationship was fine. My wife drank a lot too. Um, She was also an attorney and, you know, so if we weren't drinking with people from my job, we were drinking with people from her job. And it just sort of seemed like the normal way to to live. Um, The hangovers got, we're getting worse every, you know, year that went by. Um, but I had sort of, I guess, resigned myself to like, this is just the way my life is, you know, work, drinking at night, you know, hangout, crushing hangover, spending the weekend completely useless and not doing anything. Um, and the job was, was very stressful to boot. Uh, I remember reading something <clears throat> a couple years ago where, um, Someone said, you know, when you get out of school or graduate school, you can go one of two ways. You can either stop drinking and sort of, you know, not do that sort of thing or you can turn pro, you know, you can become a professional drinker. And that, that was the choice that I had sort of taken for myself. Um, so now we're, uh, I'm up to about 2006. Uh, my wife got pregnant uh, We've been trying to have a child for a while, and it it wasn't working. It finally, she got pregnant. Uh, she quit drinking right away, um, and I actually, my level decreased quite a bit because you know I, I didn't want to you know leave her at home and I'd be out carousing around. I mean, I was still drinking at work stuff, um, but I would say probably 50, 60 percent less than I was beforehand, and uh, that reduction just sort of. I started thinking about that and how, like, I was able to do more things. I was, my life was starting to look a little different uh, and a little more pleasant. And I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe after the baby's born, maybe we can take a, try a dry month or something. You know, this is what was going around. And, um, and then uh, the night that she had the baby, she had a preeclampsic issue and ended up having a stroke and and dying um the, as my son was being born now um there's really nothing to, that can possibly prepare you for 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 something like that happening to you um and i at first did not know i had no idea how to deal with that how to process it how to even engage with it um you know, when you, you see your life going in one direction and then an hour later, it's going completely the other direction. Um, and I would like to say that that was like the point at which I decided that I was going to stop drinking and, uh, get my shit together because I was responsible for another, hu- you know, human being. Uh, but, uh, there was no way, uh, that I could have at that time, just sort of taken away the thing that se- that, at time, I perceived was the only thing that was holding me together. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I, uh, you know, I was a good parent at that time to my son, I did not let the alcohol um, get in between that relationship. But uh, it was definitely there. And I had switched jobs. And the job was involved a lot of travel, So at the same time, I I had had to arrange for care for my son while I was on the road. When I was on the road, I would kind of let loose because that's really um, the place that I could do it. And, um, you know, fast forward, uh, it was the worst year of my life. Um, It's hard to communicate to somebody else exactly how difficult that year was, uh, but it was very difficult. But at the end of that year, you know, I, I met a woman who I became remarried to, my wife, now Aaron and um, it sort of became the it sort of began the process of me really examining um, more stuff internal and how I was going to you know create a life which is basically a second life you know I had had this entire first life uh, I had been with my first wife from the end of college all the way through when she passed away and then you know I have this, intermediary year. And then all of a sudden I have this new life and, and my, my wife, um, you know, my, Aaron had a son from a previous marriage. And so he, you know, joined. you know, we, we just made a family together after a year. And I, at that point I was able to take the drinking and I was still drinking a lot on the road, <clears throat> but at home I was saying, okay, uh, a glass of wine a night, maybe two, uh, and, and I was able to, to do that and it was fine. Um, but you know, it wasn't fine because always in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you know, okay, well, that's two glasses, but they were kind of small glasses. You know, maybe I could have three if I'm using the, this, you know, the small glass, you know, and so I, alcohol occupied this outsized, um, you know, thing in my head, this outsized area in my head that, uh, it, it started to really bother me. And, You know, I would go on these business trips and, uh, you know, you always go out to dinner and there's drinking at dinner, there's drinking before dinner, there's drinking after dinner. And, you know, then I'd have to get up and I'd go do like, I'd go mediate a case, you know, after having drank like seven or eight drinks the night before. And I know I wasn't as sharp as I could have been otherwise. I mean, the only saving grace is everybody else around me was was probably just as, you know, hungover as I was. But, you know... (laughs) Using the lowest standard as the standard isn't really the way to live your life either. So, um, so it took a good another decade before. So now we're up to 2017, 18, where I really started making a concerted effort to start to address alcohol as the the issue that it had become. So I would set up the rules, you know, everybody knows the rules, you know, uh, no drinking, just drink on Thursday, Friday, or whatever, Saturday, or no drinking at home, only drinking when you're on the road or no drinking on the road, only drinking when you're home or, you know, and you know, nine times out of 10, the same day I set the rule was the day that it, I broke it. And that's when I started realizing that even, <clears throat> even though my alcohol consumption at the time, um, that I quit was moderate by historical standards of my own life. Uh, it still was too required too much mental energy. It was always in my head. You know, am I going to drink tonight? Am I going to get a bottle of wine? And I'd have to get a bottle of wine every night. And I was picking restaurants based on whether or not I they had, you know, whether they served alcohol or not. You know, and and um, yeah. So I mean, I you know, is there, was there a, a bottom? I mean, I, I like to think that, like, um, you know, rather than like one bottom, I, I always use the analogy of like an anchor that's sort of skipping along the bottom. Like every once in a while I hit a bottom and then I bounce back up and hit a bottom and bounce back up. And, you know, you can go on like that for a very long time, especially if you're you telling yourself that, you know, you this is just, way it is this is what how everybody drinks this is what everybody does and you know to do anything else would be crazy right so uh we went on a a little trip in july of 2019 the family and i went to a cabin in upstate new york and uh we got a couple of bottles of wine as we usually do and uh we had a family monopoly game and uh I just at the end of the night, like I had drank so much that when I woke up the next morning with a horrible hangover, I didn't remember the end of the Monopoly game. And that scared me because I never really had black. I mean, maybe if I'd been blacking out since I started drinking, I would have been able to you know, pull the plug on the drinking long beforehand. But, the, I, but I never did. I mean, blackouts was never, never something that really happened to me. And I don't know if what happened to me that night was a was a blackout or what it was, but it's it scared me enough that I said, you know what, I'm really going to, I think I need to put the alcohol down. I need to put it off to the side and I need to really work on not drinking anymore. And I had had a few fits and starts with that. Over the previous couple of years, you know, I'd get a month in or I would get two months in. I would take, you know, I do a 30 day challenge. I guess the one year no beer people like had me kind of roped into them for a while, you know, and um, You know, I'd be able to get through 30 days, but then I was always like, ah, screw it. You know, this is you get a case of the efforts and just go right back. You know, I didn't really see any like reason, you know, <laughs> Which is so weird in hindsight. Um, so, um, you know, I started looking for stuff out there, pod podcasts, mostly because I listen to a lot of podcasts and, uh, I came across first one I came across was I think recovery elevator, uh, you know, Paul Churchill's thing. And that, you know, great, great guy, great, great podcast. And, uh, I think one of the people that he had on, on there mentioned your book, I was also very active in the stop drinking subreddit on Reddit and, and, you know, God bless those people that, that, resource was probably the thing that did more than anything else, uh, to kind of get me pointed in the right direction. And I still recommend any, anybody that comes up to me now and asks me for a resource, I say, go there, read people's stories, read what they're doing, you know, because it, it's not a lot of these places are, or internet chat groups or whatever, you know, it's all 12 step, it's straight AA. And that really didn't hold much of an appeal to me. Um, but anyway, so so Paul Churchill had a guest on and, and and in the Stop Drinking subreddit, your book kept coming up, and uh, This Naked Mind, and the idea of This Naked Mind. And I checked, and oh, lo and behold, you had a podcast. And, oh, that's great. So I started listening to the podcast, and that sort of brought me to the book, and I started reading the book. And I tell you, Annie, the first time I picked up that book and, and started reading it, I, I would I, I you know, run, so I would listen to it as an audio book as I was running. And you know, it was like epiphany after epiphany in terms of like how I started to think about how alcohol got to occupy the space in my head that it did. And it really is this weird combination of um, social pressure and social and these shared uh, accepted norms that have really have no basis in reality. and, And like this idea that all the things that you think alcohol is doing for you. And actually it's doing the exact opposite. (laughs) But I mean, to bring that out from, you know, the, your lizard brain, like into the light, you need somebody to sort of, to say, you know, look at this and look what's happening. And, you know, and, and I, and I did, and I started looking at it and, and, you know, the, the thing that I took, took away, like my, Big takeaway early on from from this naked mind was the idea that you know sobriety is not a state of of deprivation. It's not like I can't have this. It's not. It's a state of like abundance. Like I can have all this other stuff. Like all I have to do is not do this one thing, and and then life, you know, gets better. And I locked onto that idea really hard, and and that was extremely helpful to me. Um, you know, and and as was like all the, all the, you know, science and the research that you did for that book. And, and, you know, I never really thought about the way alcohol is marketed. I never really thought about, you know, the, the way it's, um, it's sort of pushed forward at every opportunity. It's made a part of every celebration. It's made, it's, it's like so woven into the fabric of society and, and there really is no reason for it. And that, you know, it was, it was a light bulb moment, as they say in like Recovery Elevator. Um, the light bulb moment in my sobriety was realizing that, you know, sobriety is is a state of, you know, grace and, um, you know, and, and alcohol is not what you think it is, you know. Um, and, and I still feel funny, you know, telling people at, at work, you know, I'm not drinking and, and you know, I quit. When did I quit? In the, in the late summer of 2019, so before the pandemic. Um, which thank God, you know, I, because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that, you know, you just look at the statistics, you look at overdoses, you look at, uh, alcohol abuse and the, this rise of liver disease in, in, uh, in people through the pandemic. And it's just been astronomical. Um, but you know, the one saving grace of the pandemic for me, or one of them was that, you know, work travel basically disappeared. So... You know, I didn't have to go out and and try and be social and all this stuff. I had I had maybe like a a six month period of that before the pandemic, between when I quit, and thirty days in, I had to go to a conference, uh, on an industry group and and give a presentation. And I, you know, have given presentations in the past. It's it's something that I do. And uh, I had, I don't think I'd ever done one without being either hungover or uh, I, I can't, I don't think I usually would, uh, you know, do a, do nips before the presentation. Uh, usually they were in the morning and I was never really a morning drinker guy. Um, but, you know, doing that without any sort of, uh, uh, cause even a hangover is like an altered state. It, it alters your your perceptions and, and in some ways, like I would go to court and I would argue motions hungover and I found it easy, almost easier than if I hadn't been drinking at all. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, while simultaneously increasing my level of anxiety. So I, I don't really know how, how that works, but I would get much more anxious about these presentations. But anyway, so I, did, I went to that conference, I did this one and I was able to string thoughts together more articulately. I couldn't, I didn't have to stare at a script. I, I could sort of extemporaneously speak. Uh, and that was a new thing for me. And, and I would go, I went to the dinner afterwards. I didn't drink. Um, I was still at the point where I, I always felt like I needed to disguise the fact that I wasn't drinking. So I'd, I'd go out and I'd get a ginger ale. I'd tell the guy to put it in a rock glass with a twist of lemon, uh, you know, so it looked like a, a thing of scotch. And then it, it occurred to me the other day how insane that is. That like I'm trying to just you know I don't want anyone to know I'm not using drugs, right? Like I'm not using a drug, um, but but I mean that's the that's the way society looks at alcohol now. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's the only drug you have to justify not using, right? Um, so the other the other thing that that the uh, the pandemic did uh, for me is it it allowed me to sort of find a little, a few other people in my town who who were in a similar situation. I, um, you know, I, I uh, belong to a bunch of these groups on Facebook i think this Naked Mind and Recovery Elevator. And I saw a, a guy I knew who uh, our kids were friends had, um, you know, had liked one of those pages. So I kind of reached out to him on the side. I said, oh, hey, I see you're, you know, interested in uh, Recovery Elevator. Um, you know, and that, that led to a discussion and we sort of felt each other out and we realized that we both had something in common. And, you know, he struggled with, you know, drugs. And and for me, it was alcohol. Well, he was alcohol and drugs too. And uh, we got together and we tried to figure out how we could, um, you know, he wasn't really a fan of AA either. Every time he went to AA, it would end up sending him back out uh, to, to drink. So we decided uh, that we would maybe, you know, for accountability, we'd start our own podcast. And so we did. And, uh, um, you know, it's um, recovery in the middle ages, we call it, because we're both middle-aged. And I think people who come into the middle ages, um, you know, they they have a different set of challenges and, and a different set of strengths than kids maybe who'd get sober at 19 or 20. And I'm happy that so many kids now seem like they are getting sober in 19 to 20. It seems like the idea of not wasting your youth in bars has become like uh, uh, you know a, a cultural touchstone, and that's great. But there's a lot of people from like Gen X and uh, you know uh, my, you know my era and a few years younger than me who you know have have now reached the age where they're they're wrestling with addiction issues and um, and are not so comfortable in AA. So anyway, we, we set out, we started this podcast and, um, you know, it's been going very well. We have listeners and what it, what, what it really, the best thing for us is it's like accountability. Like we, we're accountable to each other. We work on this thing all week. So we don't go to AA meetings, you know, but our recovery is always, it's there in the forefront of our heads because we're always thinking about it and we're always talking about it. Uh, and once a week we sit down and, um, talk to other people about it. So, um, you know, that, that was a, that was, I I attribute recovery in the middle ages to, um, helping me maintain my sobriety. Um, and I know not my partner feels the same way. Um, you know, but on the other hand, it's, it's like, I feel almost guilty because I don't feel like I, I, Need to go out and and drink. I have this feeling like I it's the last thing in the world I want to do, and I never felt that way coming out of a tw- out of a twelve step meeting. I always felt like you know, I oh, geez, you know, something wrong with me. I you know I have this thing inside me that makes you you know, and I always felt like I like why can't I be like a normal person, and you know it was just getting away from that and getting more into it's something. know the 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 thought process that goes on with like this naked mind and and other like cognitive behavioral therapies where you start to realize that you know you you don't there's nothing wrong with you (laughs) there's something wrong with the the stuff that's going on outside of you you know and and maybe your subconscious has just found a maladaptive way of dealing with this substance that you know is dangerous poisonous and addictive uh and you need to just untangle start to untangle some of that stuff
0: you know so that's awesome um so so recovery in the middle ages is it on like apple and oh yeah
1: all the places? um I'm so, oh, sorry yeah it's uh you can find it anywhere our website is middleagesrecovery.com and you can you know go there and and find a link to the uh you know our, our most recent episodes but we're on spotify and stitcher and uh apple podcasts everywhere fine podcasts are sold uh you can find us and you know if, if you can take something out of that that helps you then then great i encourage you to come and check it out um you know we we have different uh sometimes we have guests sometimes we just talk uh we did actually did a three um Three episode series on this naked mind. <laughs> so, for anybody listening to this, if you want to sort of get our take on on that book in, in even greater detail, you know, feel free to check that out. Um, you know, it's a labor of love. We don't we don't do it for money. You know, somebody once said to me, you know, podcasting. There's tens of dollars in podcasting. You should do it. Uh, so
0: yeah, that's true. That's funny. Um, I wanted to to back all the way up. I had one, one follow-up question, uh, sure. which was when you said your first time you ever drank, it just like, you know, made you feel like a superhero and, and really good. Um, I often hear that when someone has dealt with a lot of anxiety or intensity in childhood, do you mm-hmm. find that to be true for you or?
1: Uh, yes. My childhood was a little, it wasn't, I mean, my parents. Were, I was adopted when I was six months old. So, you know, a, a lot of adopted people. My experience has been, from talking to them that, that, and from my own experience, that there is a sort of feeling. A, I don't know if I want to call it a lack, but just like a, a, a diff. It's difficult to feel like you feel at home anywhere. Um, so th- that, and my mother had a bit of a drinking problem herself. Um, you know, she. Her and my father were sort of the madmen generation, so there was a lot of that sort of drinking going on—cocktails, uh, you know, in the afternoon and the early evening. And but I think it got away from my mother a little bit because there were a couple of times that I discovered, you know, empty vodka bottles under the bed and so forth, and and it made her a little erratic in terms of how she dealt with us as kids. And you know, having an alcoholic parent, and I've explored, you know, adult children of alcoholics and so on. Uh, you know. That, also, that, that feeling like you never knew what you're going to get from a parent is also very destabilizing to, mm-hmm. to a child. Yeah. Um, and so that was always a, an anxiety. And then, you know, at school, I was, I was always a little heavy and I got picked on. And so that was another issue. I mean, so when I got to high school, um, you know, and, and I started drinking there, I, I, I felt like I fit in. Exactly. It was like, I I could finally fit in. I felt comfortable in my own skin really where I hadn't before.
0: Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. I think it's so interesting because I do, you know, if you were to broad type experience into two different buckets, Mm -hmm. there's people who drink and they're like, whatever, what was that all about? And generally there's not a lot of, of natural anxiety or, or uneasiness um, in their lives. So there's nothing that the alcohol is actually medicating. right? And so then they come back to it in later life and it just becomes like, then they're stressed and they're working. You know, that mm-hmm. was very much my experience. Um, or it's that first drink is kind of like, oh my gosh. Mm. And, <laughs> and that is often because there's a lot of uneasiness in, and it, and it doesn't have to be from anything traumatic, by the way. I, I think that one of the real true disservices we do ourselves in general, when we're on this journey of kind of like self-awareness is the voice in our head that says, well, it wasn't as bad as that. Well, at least I had parents. Well, I mm-hmm. wasn't in an orphanage. Well, you know, and like that that voice, it doesn't do anybody any good. All it does is disallow you from actually exploring what your experience was. Because right. to be honest, like it's all uh, relative. So somebody could have this idyllic childhood and then have something relatively minor happen, but because they have no tolerance for it and they have no scaffolding for anything painful, it can be very traumatic, whereas somebody could have a very traumatic childhood and, and, and they could actually you know, have, have built tools to cope um, in a way that, you know, so, so this idea of comparison, I find myself doing it all the time, well, it wasn't that bad, especially right. when you start to like, look back at your childhood. So anyway, I just wanted to, to clarify that, that's really helpful. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Trauma is, it's all, a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder, Um, especially childhood trauma. You know, there's, I I was speaking to a a therapist who, who uh, said, you know, she, who deals with a lot of addicted people. And, and she said, um, you know, you, you ask people, well, how was your childhood? And they say, oh, it's fine. I had had a great childhood. Never, never, you know, it was, it was idyllic almost. And then you, you ask a few more questions, you know, like, or the big question that she would ask is, you know, how would you raise your children differently than you were raised. And then it all come it all comes out how messed up their childhood was, you know, and, and because you may not even be aware of the trauma. It may just be and sort we try of, to
0: protect our parents right? By the way. yes. Like we that yes. is our default nature mm-hmm. is that we have to protect them at all costs. And so right. so even the idea that something might have been amiss or that they didn't do exactly how we would have done it is a terrifying idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it does, it, it prevents us, I think, from discovery. But, but the way through that is really um, being able to be curious without blame. And yeah. I think that's a level of kind of emotional development that you have to come to. And it's very hard to do while you're still in the midst of using substances, by the way, because like either the pendulum swings to the place where you're, uh, okay, I get it. I had a crappy childhood, but then all of it is blame mm-hmm. and none of it is responsibility. Um, and then you get into this very, very nasty blaming place, which which gives you no power. It actually steals all of your power or you get into this place and, I, and I've been there for for years. I mean, oh, how's your childhood? Oh, it was great. And mm-hmm. then only in like the last year or so going through some deeper work, I'm like, wow, there was moments where that wasn't great and that wasn't great and that wasn't great. And, and so it's so it's so fascinating once you allow that, like you're human, your parents are human, they're fallible mm-hmm. and that's okay. And you don't have to blame them and you don't have to be mad at them and you don't have to make them wrong, but you can also accept that that did impact you. And and that kind of balancing act is is really fascinating. Um,
1: It is. And, and, but the thing is you're never going to be able to get to that level of clarity if you're still drinking or if you're, or if you're using any kind of a substance, because you, you just can't even engage with that part of your brain. You just, you, you will fall into a blame cycle and you will, you will harbor a lot of anger for your parents. <laughs> yeah, You know, I did- It will probably make years. you drink more
0: because you feel even more powerless when you're blaming. I mean, you by default put yourself in a victim position, which is not a powerful position, doesn't have any mm-hmm. agency. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. It um, is. Well, this has been really great. I mean, you're you're a phenomenal storyteller. The whole arc of it, and then going into details of of certain areas, um, it's it's really been uh, so so good and, and such a just honest, vulnerable story. So thank you for that. Um, well, I wanna ask let me, you though.
1: Before you, let me thank you because I, I don't think I would be sitting here having a cogent conversation like this or have been able to do any of the internal work that I have been doing, had it not been for this naked mind, had it not been for your podcast and had it been, not been for the work that you put in Uh, and I, and I'm sure you hear this fairly often, uh, from people, but, um, you know, I, I, I cannot thank you enough for, for, you know, the way you've really just changed the whole way people look at alcohol and how people recover. I mean, it's, it's, and you know, the more I, the more I, the more work I do internally, the more I realize how big your contribution to this space has been.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's really awesome. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah I definitely appreciate it and it was interesting to feel it's so it's so great sometimes to feel on this side of the whole arc of the journey and you know it's a never-ending journey so I guess there's not really sides but feeling very much on an island when I first published the book. I'll bet what is happening (laughs) i'm not and and by the way i thought that i was in the i was in the like okay we're all stopping drinking there's one island and i just got on (laughs) it and then i got on it and i discovered that like i was by myself like there was another (laughs) island of a a certain way you did it and and Mm -hmm. it was it was this whole really interesting um you know intense experience but So I really appreciate that. And to see that it is, was worth it, you know, in the, in the lives, like, it's just so it's wonderful to hear. So that's just awesome. Um, So let me ask you the question that I ask at the end, if you were going to go back, you know, uh, to Mark, who, you know, was, I love, I love the analogy of the anchor, keeping Mm -hmm. hitting bottom and and keeping it going. And you were going to try to tell him about like how your life is today and what things are like now, what would you say?
1: Well... It's, that's a tough question because, you know, people take 0% of the advice that, uh, (laughs) that they don't ask for. um, And that includes from future me, I would think. Um, I I would, I would try to tell uh, past Mark that um, maybe you could accelerate the, uh, (laughs) the program of trying to, trying to work through your issues uh, without having all those years uh, in between. I don't consider everything that you've done, I would say to me, you know, none of it is wasted time. Uh, Life is a learning experience. And, uh, you know, there are incidents that I regret, but I don't regret the way I I live my life. Uh, And that things get better. And that on the other side of the struggle is a life uh, that you, can't, can't even dream of at this moment, but it, it, it's a great life. So I don't know. That's what I tell them.
0: I love that. I don't know if you believe
1: me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't (laughs) have at the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing about that question, but I do, I do like it because there are lots of people who are actually listening. And um, I mean, this podcast has close to a hundred thousand downloads a week now. (laughs) And so like, there's a lot, a lot of people who Actually, want that advice and are saying, "Hey, well, I want to know what what your you know what the view is from that side after the work is put in and stuff." And so that's really powerful.
1: Well, I I have hobbies, I have interests, I have a, a, a great, beautiful family. My wife and I get along wonderfully well. My children are wonderful. I mean, just if you can, if you're listening and you're th- even thinking about. Do I have a drinking problem or should I stop drinking? The answer is yes. Uh, and your life will get immeasurably better. But <laughs> that, so, that's all I can say.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much. It's just really been fun. I appreciate it.
1: Yes. Thank you, Annie.
0: Hi, it's Annie Grace. I wanted to interrupt this podcast. I guess the end of this podcast to say that if you're totally serious about actually and truly and forevermore transforming a relationship with alcohol. Really leaving it behind in the rearview mirror for once and forever, and changing your psychology about it. We have a program called the Path that I've created specifically for you. Now, it's not for you if you're still dabbling or trying to figure out where you want to be, or maybe even if you still want to moderate. All those things are fine. That's great. But if you're beyond that and you're like, No, I just want to be done with this. I'm ready to invest some time, and I'm ready to just make this happen. I want the answer. I want the easy way out. Then I want you to check out Naked Mind. and join us in the path where you receive coach guided and community support so that you can truly make this lasting change that you want in your life and as always rate review and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today